Well, there is tension in the life of a Christian. Okay, life is pretty tense here under the sun. Two quick examples. We're just going to dive right in here. Um, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of, of man, of humans, often appears to be a real contradiction here, but it really is a dynamic tension because both things are true. So, for instance, Peter, remember he was pretty confident that he would die for Jesus, and Jesus told him ahead of time, prophesied that he was going to deny him three times. Let me tell you when the, when the rooster is going to crow. I'm just going to tell you all about it. So God was sovereign all, over all of that, but that didn't mean that Peter, after he denied Christ, he said, glad that's over with. He was completely responsible. He was guilty, and he went out and he wept. Okay, another example. The creation around us is, even, be, even in spite of the fall, it's good, good, good. There's so much of the glory of God around us, and certainly in the way that He continues to be at work by His grace in Christ. And so there's so much to wonder at, so much to give thanks for, so much to praise God for. And life under the sun is incredibly painful and sad. There's so much brokenness around us all the time. So that is the sorrowful yet always rejoicing tension. It's not either or, it's both and. And so we, we live in between these two realities and it oftentimes creates a lot of tension. And sometimes it's hard to deal with that tension, but that tension is actually really productive in God's wisdom. If we don't give way to frustration or cynicism, that tension will actually take us down deep into the rich minds of God's wisdom. And it'll also take us further up and further in into the heights of wonder, love, and praise. That tension also will season our souls. The pressure that it puts on our souls, it actually seasons us. It makes us wise. That tension will actually make us lovingly sorrowful, appropriately sorrowful, without becoming hopeless, without being paralyzed, and it will make us buoyantly rejoicing without becoming glib or arrogant in that joy. So do you see how important both of those poles, both of those truths, both of those realities are to keep us, in a sense, on the path? It keeps us from flying off into one direction or the other. And the scripture reading that Greg read is representative, once again, of that tension. Did you see it? Did you feel it? Look at it again there on the inside of your bulletin. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul wrote that. Paul also wrote 1 Corinthians 9, where it says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. That sounds like human will and exertion, doesn't it? Lest, lest if I don't do this, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then he says, be imitators of me. Well, which is it, Paul? Make up your mind. Or he says in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not by my effort. (laughs) It's by the grace of God. I can't claim any glory for any of this. I can't claim any credit. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though... He qualifies it again, not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Or Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. You feel the tension here? I mean, this is really practical. I think we bump into this all the time. Where does waiting on the Lord end and passivity begin? Or where does, on the other hand, faith-driven responsibility and action end and taking matters into your own hands begin? You ever feel that tension? You ever bump against that and wonder what you're being driven by? Where does effort and striving in faith end and effort and striving in our own flesh, our own effort, our own strength? Where does that begin? What are the differences? How do we know whether it's with a job search or a spouse search or all kinds of major decisions or many not so major decisions as well? So, that's why we've been here the last three weeks and then this morning. This little series, taking a breather, taking a break from Luke, considering the topic of resting and running, what the Bible says about those things. Because it talks a lot about rest and it talks a lot about running. So we began with Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And we're going to conclude this morning, I think, <laughs> um, with Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Run the race that's set before you. Those are not at odds at all. In fact, last week we looked at Hebrews 4 where it says, strive to enter that rest. Those things are not contradictory. They're instead really wise truths that are both true and the tension that they produce produces really good things and it protects us as we move forward in faith. So this morning we need to run with endurance the race that's set before us. If this is God's word, if it's divinely inspired, if it's infallible, then on God's sovereign authority, the one who made you, who knows you better than you even know yourself, who gives us his word, he knows that we need both of these words. We need Jesus to say to us, come to me all your weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we need to hear, run the race that's set before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And we can't mute or downplay either one of those messages. We need to wrestle with what they mean so we don't misinterpret them. And we need to wrestle with how they fit together, but we dare not sacrifice one on the altar of the other. So let's read Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, and then pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll dive in here and see how far we can get. Um, 
So Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, remember chapter 11, all of these folks that have already run the race, Abraham, Moses, David, Rahab, Gideon, etc. Okay? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you've given us both of these words, a call to rest and the call to run. And we thank you that despite the fact that we've been running from you by nature, all of us by nature run away from you and run to all kinds of other created things to try to find real rest and real life. You didn't just leave us to ourselves. We thank you that you came running after us and that Jesus lived the life of perfect trust that we have not lived, could not live, so that he could die in our place for all of our rebellious running away from you so that we could be drawn back in. We could come to you because of your grace, because of your forgiveness, because of your mercy, because it doesn't depend on our effort so that we could come to you and have real rest of soul and then by your grace be empowered to run the race that's set before us. Would you please teach us these things? Show us what this looks like. By your spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. I pray that you would give us rest in Christ and move and motivate us by your grace to run on Christ and to run after Christ, following in his footsteps. So Lord, please help us. Give us ears to hear. Give us soft and receptive hearts as you speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's a little outline in your bulletin if it's helpful for you. I think we're only going to get through the front half um, this morning. But if you look at this text, these two verses, there is actually only one imperative command, even though in the translations it looks like there's two, um, because it says, let us, let us. Okay, everything else is actually supporting. Here's, Here's how it goes, literally. It's let us run. That's the one command, and everything else is how to run. So literally it's let us run. How? Laying aside encumbrances or weights and sins let us run how with the witnesses since we have this great cloud around us let us run how with endurance let us run how with our eyes fixed on jesus so that's the outline for this morning is we got to run it's first point (laughs) and then how do we run 
with the witnesses, without the weights and the sins, with endurance, and then with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Okay? So first, this command to run. I mean, this is in a sense where the whole book of Hebrews climaxes. Remember last week we talked about chapter two and they were in danger of drifting. They're coasting. They're starting to shrink back in unbelief. And so the writer is saying, no, don't drift. This is dangerous to drift. Think about what happened to those Israelites in the wilderness. They didn't make it into that rest. You need to strive to enter that rest. Don't shrink back. Run in faith. Okay. And so don't drift. Run is a good little summary of the whole book of Hebrews. So, we need to hear that call as well. Many of you might be familiar with that, the old book um, by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. Okay? Um, it's a pretty clear illustration of some of these verses. You know how it started right off the bat, how the book starts? Um, he has this dream. And in the dream, the man began to cry, life, life, eternal life, that's what he wanted. And so he even stuck his fingers in his ears to anything that would divert him from his, his path. And so he ran. Well, you might not be familiar with another little book that he penned called The Heavenly Footman. It's this small. And it's basically an extended meditation on 1 Corinthians 9, one of the texts that Greg read. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, run um, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it, Okay. And in the introduction, J.I. Packer says this about it. He says, running for Bunyan is a picture of wholehearted effort to get away from something dreadful and to get to something wonderful. So the whole point of his little book is this. He says, they that will have heaven must run for it. The prize is heaven, and if you will have it, you must run for it, he says. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you think that's dangerous? What do you mean? You've got to run hard enough in order to get in? Is this, is this salvation by works? you have to earn your way? Do you have to be a fast enough runner or a hard enough runner to get in? No. No, he's not saying that at all. We don't run in order to get on the path. It's not by human will or exertion. There's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. You are impotent and helpless. The point is, if God grabs a hold of you and you are really on that path, you will inevitably run because you want to know Christ. You know how Paul says it in Philippians? He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, if Christ Jesus makes you his own, you want him. You want more of him. And so you run on the path that he sets you on. So he says, brothers, I don't consider my, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that's what happens when the grace of God gets a hold of you and sets you on this path, this race, sets you in this race. By the grace of God, you start working and running. And it's not you, it's the grace of God operative in you. And so if you are not running, if you are just hanging out in the ditch and you're happy to just hang out in the ditch or under the shade of the tree, if you don't care 
to have more of Jesus and to enter that rest, then the question is, have you really trusted in Jesus? Has that grace really gotten a hold of you? Okay, so just to be clear of what I'm saying and what Bunyan's saying and what I'm not saying and what Bunyan's not saying. So here's what he says to unpack it a little bit further. He says, what? To run back again, back again to sin, to the world, to the devil, back again to the lust of the flesh. Oh, those men shall be damned for professing to all the world that sin is better than Christ. For the man that runs back again, he does as good as say, I've tried Christ and I've tried sin, and I do not find so much profit in Christ as in sin. So do you see why this is good news? If you've got ears to hear, of course, throw off the stuff that slows us down and entangles us and let's get our eyes fixed on Jesus and run. That's, that's not us working for and, and earning our way in. It's yes, absolutely. I want life, life, eternal life. So we've got to run. So before we go on and talk about how we run, are you in this race? Are you running the race of faith? Do you believe that God rewards those who seek Him? Remember last chapter, without faith, this is a faith issue. It's not you trying to earn anything. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. So the question is, Where's the reward? Is it found in sin? Is it found in this world? Or is it found in Christ? So is Christ that great gain? Just like Paul saying, I counted everything as loss. Throw it off. Because I want Christ. Okay? So is he your greatest gain? Or, you know, there is such a thing as being a cultural Christian. It's relatively well accepted. I mean... You probably get the snicker here or there or whatever. But if you're kind of a good, upstanding, moral person, you're not going to get that much flack. Okay, so are you running? Are you on this race or on this path, running the race of faith because you want Christ, because he's your treasure? Or do you need to hear the same exhortation that these Hebrews needed to hear? You're in danger. It seems like you're drifting. Do you really want Christ? Run. Don't drift. Run. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. So we need to examine ourselves. And even if we are genuinely trusting in Christ, it's so easy to get derailed, to end up in the ditch, to get weighed down, to get entangled, to get indifferent, to get lazy, sluggish spiritually. So we need to hear this word. We can get tired and weary and heavy laden. We need to hear this word to run. It's not an easy road. This is going to be a long marathon type race. The word race here is the same word that we get our English word agony or agonize. In fact, remember where Paul says, I I, uh, fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy. Literally, that's agonize the good agony. So here he says, run the agony, run this race. Okay, it's long. It's a hard marathon race. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. Okay, but don't ever let anyone tell you that it isn't worth it. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep, like what you throw off, to gain what he cannot lose. So, 
We need to hear the call to run the race that's set before us. How do we run this race? There's four answers to that question in the surrounding context. So first, with the witnesses. Look at it again, 12.1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run. Now, how is this supposed to be a reason to run? How is this supposed to be a, a motivation to run or a how? I, I had misconception of this verse for the longest time. I used to think that the idea was, well, since there's this great cloud of witnesses watching us, we should be motivated to run. You know, I mean, David and Abraham, they're watching, you know, and maybe you can add in some of your family members that you really respect, you know, your grandfather. He's watching. So he's watching. So be motivated to run. Does that do it for you? I don't know. It doesn't really do it for me. I mean, if God's not enough, I don't know why my grandfather would be, you know, that much more significant, although I love and respect my grandfather, and he was a great example of this to me. Okay? The point is, there's two, there's two ways to use the term witness in English and in Greek, active-passive. Okay? So if you pull out of here after church this afternoon, and you see an accident, you passively witness that accident, but you may be called upon to actively witness, to speak what you saw. You see how it can be active and passive? Okay, so I thought it was in the passive sense, but actually it's in the active sense. That's what's going on here. Okay, just like Abel. Remember his blood speaks back in chapter 11? So what's happening, these witnesses, they are cheering for us. They're encouraging us. They are exhorting us. They're actually rooting for us. They've got stuff to say to us. That might sound really weird, but look at the context. Look back at verse 39 of chapter 11. They're not doing this because they're bored. They don't have anything better to do in heaven. Look at verse 39 to 40. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So they, they received the promises of a city with foundations, but they haven't received the city with foundations. Does that make sense? The new heavens and the new earth has not come yet. It's not going to come until the last one finishes the finish line. So, all these having gained approval through their faith, they're in, okay, but they're waiting. They didn't receive what was promised, but they trusted Him all the way to the end. They died in faith. They're looking forward to this city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. They're looking to the reward. Revelation 21 and 22. God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They wouldn't be glorified. We're not going to be fully made new, new bodies until Jesus comes back. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also run, just like they did. Okay? It's, it's kind of like, um, like a relay race. Everybody doesn't win until everybody finishes the line. Or a, a team wrestling meet. I know both of those examples break down because um, one of the wrestlers can lose. And Okay, I, I understand that. But the point is, is it's a team sport. And the real win doesn't come until the end. Nobody receives the full prize until all the battles have been fought and won. 
Okay, so here's, here's the point. These witnesses are speaking to us. They're cheering us on. So we should run the race of faith with the witnesses, which means listen to them. Learn from their lives what they have to say. So, for instance, Abraham. Is this encouraging to you that the man of faith, the man of faith, the father of faith, everybody looks back. You know, all the Jews just look back to him as this paragon of faith. And what did he do? He pawned his wife off twice in unbelief. He was a coward. And God rescued him again and again and brought him through this school of faith to the point when God says, sacrifice your son. He said, he must be planning on raising the dead because he made a promise to me. Do you think maybe he has something to say to some of us cowards who have done some pretty shameful things in unbelief? We can keep running. We can know forgiveness. We can get plucked out of the ditch and put back on the path and keep running because Abraham's life speaks. It still speaks. How about David? Does he have anything to say to any of you who have blown it massively? Are you done if you've committed some egregious sexual sin? I mean, he's a murderer too, to boot. You think he might have something to say to some of us who might think, I I can't be forgiven? No. Rather than dancing around when Nathan put his finger in his chest, he said, I've sinned against the Lord. How about that? How about that for an example? Rather than blame shifting and, and minimizing and justifying and rationalizing, you're right. And then he writes Psalm 32, Psalm 51. That still speaks should speak to us and just go on down the line. Rahab, (laughs) isn't that beautiful? She's speaking. She's preaching a really powerful sermon. Gideon, hello, mighty warrior. Are you talking to us? He was a coward. But eventually he became a mighty warrior. Not because of him, because it doesn't depend on human exertion or will, but because God spoke that truth into him and created that kind of strength. He might have something to say to us. So we run with the witnesses. Listen to Bunyan. This is great. Think much of them that are gone before. First, how really they got into the kingdom. Again, it was only by grace through faith. Secondly, how safe they are in the arms of Jesus. Would they be here on earth again for a thousand worlds? Go ahead. If you could if you could speak to King David right now and pull him aside, hey, have you seen the new iPad? You want to come back here, don't you? Don't you? What kinds of things that entangle you or weigh you down, do you think any of that would have any alluring power over those that are already safely across the finish line? Would they be here again for a thousand worlds? Thirdly, what would they judge of you if they knew your heart began to fail you in the journey or your sins began to allure you and to persuade you to stop the race? Do you think they would start to speak up? 
Bunyan says, would they not call you a thousand fools and say, oh, that he did or she, but see what we see, feel what we feel and taste the dainties that we taste of. Oh, if he were here one quarter of an hour to behold, to see, to feel, to taste and to enjoy. But the thousandth part of what we enjoy, what would he do? What would he suffer? What would he leave undone? Would he favor sin? Would he love this world below? Would he be afraid of friends or shrink at the most fearful threatenings that the greatest tyrants could invent to give him? So let us run the race that's set before us with the witnesses. Secondly, how do we run this race without the weights and sins? Hebrews 12, 1 again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. If we're going to run this race, especially if we're going to run it with endurance, we've got to lay aside and throw off the weights and the sins. Okay, sin is deceitful. It entangles us. Okay, just tell a lie to save your skin and you'll see how quickly the webs multiply. Do it in your job. Little compromise. And then you're going to have to compromise to cover your compromise. And then on and on, ad nauseum. Okay? Sin is deceitful. It entangles. Oh, I can handle it. Temptation. I can handle this a a little bit. Famous last words. Okay, it's often our sin that slows us and pulls us from the race. Okay, we get, we get slowed down, we get entangled. So what do we do? We need to, like last week, the Word of God is living and active, sharp, and every, any two-edged sword. Okay, so we take out the sword of the Spirit. We start hacking ourselves free. Okay, we pull out the superior promises of the Word when the deceitfulness of sin puts out a tentacle around our ankle. We hack it away. If we actually slow up and we start, oh, nice tentacle. Okay, if we start to be okay with that, you slow up the more accessible you are to get entangled all the more, to be grabbed all the more by additional tentacles, okay? And usually they don't look like tentacles. They look much prettier than that on the surface, okay? So does anything have dominion over you besides Christ? Is anything ruling you besides Jesus? If so, don't pander to it. Don't try to protect it. Don't hide it. Kill it. Take out the sword of the Spirit, hack away, and then run away. Okay, we need to throw off the sin, but that's not all. There's a little word, this is crazy, there's a little word that has huge implications. It says, lay aside every weight and the sin. So some of these weights, they're not evil. They can be good things that are weighing us down. So what does that mean? Well, one of the ways you could probably unpack it, you've probably heard this before. I'm not the first one to say, say it this way, but oftentimes we can have this minimalistic orientation of life that says, what's wrong with it? What if instead we ask the question, because Christ is gain, how does it help me run? You see the difference? One's negative, one's positive. One's minimalistic, one's maximalistic. Okay? How does it help me run? Does it help me run the race of faith? If not, I need to cast it aside. Maybe this illustration will help. Let's say you've just received news that you inherited the massive estate of your uncle Giuseppe. Okay? I've got some. Thank you, Janine. That's great. Italian 
sister right there. That's great. Okay. So you appreciate that. Um, he made a fortune in the design and production of exotic sports cars, and he had a real soft spot for rare and fine jewelry. You, on the other hand, drive a car that's worth maybe a few dollars more than it would command at a scrap, yard, scrap metal yard, and the only piece of jewelry you own is the bracelet that holds that thing that says you're a diabetic. As soon as you receive the news about your windfall, you start to cross-country dive to your uncle's estate. It's about a three- to four-day drive if you keep the stops to a minimum. You make great time, cover a lot of ground the first day. After you check into your motel that night, you walk across the street to the Super Walmart to get some snacks for tomorrow's ride. You wander over to the toy section and pick up several matchbox cars and a model sports car. While you're waiting in line, you see those plastic lollipop rings. You pop a few of those in your cart. Then after you've paid for your things, you pass that bank of those quarter-eating gumball-type machines. One of them's full of costumes jewelry. You see a necklace with a cross on it that you really like and you burn about 14 quarters trying to get it. Ad nauseum, all the way to Giuseppe's. You're like, that's insane. Why are you wasting your time on costume jewelry? Do you know the inheritance that's waiting for you? So Bunyan says it like this. It's but a vain thing to talk of going to heaven if you let your heart be encumbered with those things that would hinder. Would you not say that such a man would be in danger of losing, though he run, if he fill his pockets with stones, hang heavy garments on his shoulders, and great lumpish shoes on his feet? So it is here. You talk of going to heaven, and yet you fill your pockets with stones. In other words, you fill your heart with this world. Let that hang on your shoulders with its profits and pleasures. Alas, alas, you are widely mistaken. If you intend to win, you must strip. You must lay aside every weight. You must be temperate in all things. You must so run. What kinds of things have fallen into this category for you? Okay, the stuff that's fallen into this category for me, I, you know, some of them have been such stupid things. And I have been so reluctant to give them up. As if it's so much loss. As it, what? It's just like lollipop rings. Anytime God says, lay aside the stuff that hinders you and weighs you down, it's not this oppressive, restrictive, oh, there he goes again, celestial killjoy. No. It's, do you have any idea what I have for you on this path and at the end? Come to me. You're weary and heavy laden. Why are you weary and heavy laden? Because you got a bunch of rocks in your pocket. I want to give you rest. The only way that you can run and not grow weary and walk and not faint is if you lay aside every weight and sin and fix your eyes on Jesus. Come to me and run. Okay? In fact, think about that. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Weary, heavy laden laying aside the weights and the sins. I wonder if we're supposed to see that connection. Our sin makes us weary. I mean, just, I I won't take the time to go through examples, but just think through the stuff that you have struggled with over and over and over again. It seems like it's going to satisfy you. You keep going after it, and you just keep getting weary, and you're not satisfied, and it disappoints you over and over and over again. So we've got to throw off the weights and sins if we're going to run and not grow weary following in the footsteps of our Savior. Okay.
Let me just summarize here. We need run with endurance. That's a huge emphasis in the book of Hebrews. Um, everything in our culture works against this. I mean, short order cooking, instant oatmeal starts to feel like it takes too long. Okay, short attention spans, uh, all kinds of short stuff. Short-lived ministry commitments. We are impatient, results-oriented, fickle people. We show signs of spiritual ADT. Okay, it's dangerous. We need to run the race with endurance, Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Okay, so Bunyan again, he says, it's an easy thing for a man to run hard for a spurt, for a furlong, for a mile or two, but oh, but to hold out for a hundred, for a thousand, for 10,000 miles, that man that does this, he must look to meet with cross pain and wearisomeness to the flesh, especially if as he goes, he meets with briars and quagmires and other encumbrances that make his journey so much the more painful. So we need to run with the witnesses, without the weights and sins, with endurance, and then lastly, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and finisher of the faith. You know, if you actually focus on your running, oh, how's my mechanics, you know? I saw that one guy in, in the runner's magazine. Am I, am I doing? If you are kind of focused on, just like if you're focused on the, the speedometer, you're going to run into a tree. If you're focused on your mechanics, you're going to, again, veer off course or run into something. We need to fix our eyes not on our running. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. So what does it mean that he's the author and perfecter of faith? Sinclair Ferguson explained it this way. He calls, he said, Jesus is our Navy SEAL. This is great. What's, what's this mean, the author or the pioneer, the trailblazer? He says, think, if you will, of a lone reconnaissance officer who's moved ahead of his platoon, which is in great danger. He's looking for a way of escape. He cuts his way through the jungle only to discover himself face to face with a gaping ravine. There seems no way forward, but unless he finds one, all is lost. He throws a lasso-like rope to the other side of the ravine and manages to catch it on a tree on the far side. He then risks all by clambering across to the other side, hand over hand, inch by nerve-wracking inch. He secures the rope and manages to create a rope bridge. Eventually, he leads his whole platoon over the ravine onto the safety of the other side. This is a picture of Christ, our archegos. Okay, that's the author word in Greek. He's the divine reconnaissance officer who has crossed the deep and dangerous ravine between fallen man and holy God. Let me just extend that a little bit, tweak it a little bit, and piggyback on what he says. Think about it this way. The first Adam was placed in the garden, and he's given this perfect and intimate relationship with God. Just trust me, I've provided perfectly for you. He failed to live by faith, okay? Bought the lies of the evil one, doubted God's goodness, and for his sin, he was sent out of the garden into the jungle of judgment. Jesus comes, the second Adam. He was born into the jungle with all the dangerous snares of our sinful making. We created this jungle. And he did not fail to trust God. He lived the life of faith to the full. He's the perfecter of the faith. He expressed that faith perfectly, fully. He hacked his way through the jungle en route back to the garden. But what happens is there's this unbridgeable chasm between the jungle and the garden. And rather than just making a rope bridge, he dove headlong into that chasm of, ju of God's just wrath, the wrath that we deserve. That's where all of us deserve to end up because of our sin. He died for us. He dove voluntarily into that pit 
for us. He was buried for us and he was raised up. Just think about it this way. Raised up like a bridge, just breaking through the ground and just coming up in all of this strength to get us from here to there. So he's raised up and he becomes the bridge. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets across that chasm. No one comes to the Father except by him. And so he is the object of our faith and he is the example of our faith. Okay? He's the one in whom we trust and his example is the perfect example as we seek to follow in his footsteps and run the race that's set before us following his footsteps. So, we need to stop here. We need to hear the message to run. Um, and we need to hear, we need to listen to all those voices, all those examples, the witnesses that are speaking to us. Um, we need to throw off the weights and the sins that slow us down. We need endurance, and the only way we're going to have endurance is if we throw that stuff off. And we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the one that blazed the trail. He's the one that made it possible. And as we come to Him day after day, we find rest in Him so that we can run on His grace all the way to the finish line, all the way to that rest that we all long for. So we were made to rest in Christ. We're made to run on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, in the words of that old prayer, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the glory of your Son, Jesus, help us to count everything as lost, continue to see Everything is so much rubbish in comparison to gaining Christ so that we run to him and so that we run on him, empowered by your grace to run with endurance the race that's set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.